coming up on Better Place Project. This is about you and me and everyone and everything around us, how it all came to be and how we are all connected. Make the world a place. Make the world a better place. Hey, hey, I'm Steve Norris. Welcome to Better Place Project, where each week we shine a light on amazing humans from every corner of the planet who are doing extraordinary things to help make the world a better place, including sharing their knowledge with us on how we can be living healthier, happier, more purposeful lives. How did we get here and where do we go from here? In this five-part series, ecologist and founder of Oika, Dr. Rich Blundell, takes us on a journey of the cosmos. But this is way more than a history lesson about the universe. This is about you and me and everyone and everything around us, how it all came to be and how we are all connected. You see, nature has intelligence, a magnificent, sublime, complex intelligence that science is just now beginning to understand. What would it be like if we felt that intelligence inside of us? In this series, you will discover how to tap into and feel that innate intelligence that is already inside of you right now. Once humankind begins to understand this, to know this, to feel this, we will be living in a very different, much more beautiful world. So join us on this journey. It just might change your life. In this week's part one, we're going to be discussing what Dr. Blundell calls the Primordia Era, going all the way back to the Big Bang. In this episode, we're going to trace the origins of ecological intelligence to its source, the primordial light of the cosmos, or at least get as close as the science will allow us. We're going to learn how the whole of nature, including us, is an expression of relationships. We'll discover how ecological intelligence is a creative force of nature, and if we choose to participate, it will amplify our own creativity as well. As we've explored space, we've discovered that there is an intelligence out there. And now we're going to begin to understand it because it's an intelligence that's also within each and every one of us. During this series, we'll be following along a series of short videos created by Dr. Blundell. To get the most out of this experience, we strongly recommend you pause this podcast right now, scroll down to the episode notes, and click on the link of the Primordia video. Watch this wonderfully done 13-minute video and join me back here. And now, for part one, I welcome Dr. Rich Blundell. Rich, why are we doing this? Well, there's really two reasons that come to mind. Um, the first is that um, it feels good. <laughs> That's a simple way of saying it, that 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 there's a lot of um, joy and um, healing and happiness to be found in this in this work and in this story that I'm going to tell. But then there's another reason, which might be more important, and it's because we need to do this. Like we need to... Um, adapt and we need to transform in a deep way in order to respond to the situation that we find ourselves in as a society as a civilization um, and as an organism on a planet so those are really the two reasons and they're both compelling reasons i think um i don't know if you've noticed steve but um the world's kind of crazy kind of messed up yeah. there's a lot of um paradoxes that 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 are sort of in the air there's a lot of anxiety um worry even and uncertainty i have noticed a little of that the last few years <laughs> just a little right so there's i think all of these things that we are that are taking you know our attention right now that are cause for concern our political situation, our economic situation, our ecological situation, the climate situation, 
just the 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 tone of our rhetoric, things like that. All of these things, I think, are pointing to a um, a need to make some fundamental shifts in the way that we the way that we are in the world and the way that we relate to the world and to each other. And so that's what this is about. It's about what is that new way of relating to the world look like? And I don't mean to de like to define it or to um, to prescribe it, but I I think that if that there's new science and that there's new understandings about nature that are that are coming to the surface right now that actually precisely respond to that question how are we to live how are we to be in the world this is not a proclamation being made by me but i am certainly um witnessing um i'm witnessing insights that are overlooked that have been overlooked by science that can i think help us um respond to the situation that we're in all that all that anxiety and uncertainty that we're that we're talking about so and can you share with us some of those things that you're witnessing some of those insights yeah i can share them all with you um and but i think what's also helpful and important to do is to understand where these insights are coming from um and to understand how our scientific knowledge about the world is 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 revealing these insights. I usually say something to the effect that every syllable of science that I've come to understand is pointing to this new way of being in the world. Um, there's this idea of, of the Kairos, which is, it's, it's this, it's this Greek idea that of a, of a transformational time. And not only is it a transformational time, but that there's an, it's, it's an, opportune time it's an op there's a component of a precisely tuned transformation that is tuned to the changes that we need to go through that's what we're in that's what we, we are living into a chirotic moment a moment where fundamental changes will happen and that that doesn't necessarily need to elicit um anxiety actually the changes are they're good and they're beautiful if they're aligned with the intelligence of nature. And so that's what this is about. It's about, it's about, it's about revealing this deep intelligence of the universe and aligning the human intelligence with that universal intelligence. And once those two things happen, once those things get aligned, all kinds of unforeseen benefits emerge. So it's not just about gloom and doom. It's actually about joy and hope. Yeah, what's so interesting, Rich, as you're as you're saying those words, and you know, you're even referencing a you know a Greek word. You know, I'm thinking cosmos is also a Greek word that means the order of the universe. And many philosophers feel that that well, actually, the, the meaning of cosmos is the opposite of chaos. Yeah, the very chaos <laughs> and stress and anxiety that we're all experiencing. <laughs> You know, I, that just kind of came to me as you're telling that story. How beautiful is that? And how, to your point, the actual word cosmos, you know, is the opposite of chaos. But yet we're living in a world of chaos. Well, and also, does it, does it, then it makes perfect sense that in a time of chaos, where, where should you look? Well, to the cosmos. The cosmos yeah. has an organizing principle. It has an organizing uh, coherence to it that we can use to quell some of the chaos that we're in that's not to totally throw chaos out i mean there is a it serves a purpose too in the in the overall creativity of the universe but the point is in a time of chaos if you're if you're looking for um cosmos look to the cosmos that's so that's what we do love it now when you and i we've been talking about this doing this project for over a year now and and a couple months back, I went to Nantucket and spent some time with you uh, for a few days. And we were talking one night about how we would go about this. And you, you mentioned that, that in the conversation, it's important that we set it up with a fundamental mystery and that we have to be comfortable with. 
Can you unpack that for us? I can. Um, well, one of the things that has become clear to me as a scientist, okay, so when I dig deep into the sciences um, and how they work, you realize that there are scientific developments that we have imposed um, that that require us to um, construct or invent um, concepts that that help the mathematics that we use in science match up with observed observed realities, observed data. One of those concepts is called the Planck unit, two, fundamentally two, Planck time and uh, Planck distance. And that's after the, named after the German scientist. Max Planck. Max yep. Planck. Max Planck. Yep. Uh, I think it was like 1866 or something like that. that he Sounds about right. Proposed these. But anyway, these are, these are constants. So they're numerical values that we use to allow for the mathematics that we use in science to conform to observed data in the universe. The one, one way to think about Planck units and the way that they function is to think about how, you know, Albert Einstein came up with this theory of relativity and it holds true for so many of the observations that we make. But one of the preconditions for it to work is that he had to impose a speed limit to light. So the constant C. E equals and MC, e equals squared. MC yeah. squared. Right. So he had to impose this cosmic speed limit to light in order for the equations to hold true. We do something similar with the Planck constants, but instead of setting a speed limit on light, we put a resolution limit on our observational abilities in terms of time and um, space or distance. So basically what we're doing is we're like, we think of a minute as 60 seconds. So we, we can slice a minute into 60 segments, each one being one second long, right? Well, you can actually slice a second into however many units you want. Let's say a thousand. You could sure. use a microsecond or a nanosecond or a picosecond. So you can slice down a second into smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller pieces. Well, the Planck time is the smallest possible slice that you can take of time. So just like there's a fastest speed to light, there's a smallest unit of time. We call that the Planck time. I think it's five times 10 to the negative 43 seconds. So that's- So it, uh, I, really, because that, that, that's interesting. I did not know that. I was taught in high school you know, mathematics that that is infinite, that if you're bouncing a basketball- and and you you drop it and it bounces up three feet, then two feet nine inches, then two feet four inches, then two feet one, and then that mathematically it will never stop bouncing. But you're <laughs> saying mathematically it will at some point. Well, I'm saying that we impose that limit in order for us to make meaningful calculations and gotcha. how to make okay. how to make our calculations. There's the difference. Okay. Right. So in some ways it's kind of like a a fudge factor. So in other words, it's like a thing that we introduce in order to allow consensus in order for us. Okay. So the bottom line of all of that is that what, what that come the, the price of that consensus fundamentally is mystery. And this is what your question was about. So within that last slice, you know, you know, theoretically we could make a smaller slice, right? If it's an inf infinite, but we stop there. We, we stop slicing there because the idea here is that it's not going to make any difference to the to to any to any phenomena in nature. However, we do stop there, and the price of stopping there is that there's still a mystery factor that deep deep down in the workings of the cosmos and of physics, we're going to have to smuggle in a mystery. And the nature of mystery is that we do not know what that mystery is. I know that sounds like tautological or like you know just. It just sounds like I'm giving up yeah. <laughs> on on trying to explain things, and and we kind of do give up. That's my point: is that at some point we have to give up on the the quantitative, the way that we measure things, has embedded within it a mystery. So if you were to, there's also a corresponding Planck distance 
in addition to Planck time, there's a Planck distance, which is the smallest possible distance. So if you were to travel down to the smallest possible distance, you would encounter the Planck distance. This is relevant because if you if you think about the history of the universe as a story that plays out through time, a chronology, and you start going back in time and you keep slicing into further and further back in time slices of the story, you will eventually encounter the Planck time, which is basically when the clock starts at zero, which we you know, conveniently call the Big Bang. And all of the observational physics that we do in that, those, you know, those, um, in those first microseconds of the cosmos, they work. The, the physics works up to a certain point. And that point that it works back to is the Planck time. Before that, though, is mystery. Okay, so this is this is the point that that by the very nature of the way that we use mathematics to describe nature in science is that we have we have to admit some small mystery into the world into the world view and so I, I the reason i say that is because over the next however many episodes that we do this i'm going to be talking about a lot about what we know but before we begin i just want to make sure and acknowledge that we don't know everything that there's still mystery. There's still things to be found out. And, and one of those things that we find out, find out might, in fact, overturn much of what we think we know. So science is still provisional, and it's provisional because of that mystery. And I just want to embrace that mystery. I want to say, sure, we know a lot, but we don't know everything. And that means that anything's possible, basically. Just about anything is possible. We could come. We could observe something in the universe that contradicts everything that we know. I doubt that will happen. It might contradict a lot of what we know or a little of what we know. But the point is just that I, I kind of want to fend off the claim that we know everything because we don't. And that's not my point. I'm not here to to make a case that we know everything. That in fact the opposite. That there's still a big an abiding mystery in everything we know. So just wanted to say that, that was a great setup. And, and speaking of, of Planck, I want to say 15, 18 years ago, we actually put a, put up a satellite and you talk about in one of your, your videos in your training videos that most of our satellites that we put up up to that point were turned around and faced back to the earth because we love communication. We need to be able to talk to each other. We love the chatter, all, all, you know, all of that for, you know, geo, you know, targeting and, 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 and whatnot and, and, and watching each other and, and, and sharing Instagram posts and there you go tweet, and it, tweets. So <laughs> important things like that. Exactly. But in this case, they turn around and, and they pointed it outwards towards space. What are we, or what were we listening for, and mm. what were we looking for? Mm. Great question. Well, um, actually, what we were looking for in particular was something that we had heard from Earth, but didn't have a really clear idea of what it was. It was this background hum or a background static that could be heard. Um, and so this satellite that we sent up, instead of tuning it to visible light, we tuned it to a different frequency of light called the microwave and um, pointed it. Actually, it wasn't just pointing. It was actually rotating. So it was spinning as it was out. It's out there in orbit and it's spinning. And as it spins, it's taking like a video in microwave light. And what it sees is that hum that we could hear from down here. It can actually, it can visualize it. Um, and so when, as that satellite spins, it's, it's collecting this data and it's, it's piecing together a um, as it spins. It takes a picture of the uh, of the of the light that it sees, and it pieces all of those images up into a continuous image. And if you were to do a Google search for this, if you if you Google the microwave cosmic background radiation, you'll see this image. It's usually in an oval shape, so it's like a flattened oval. Yep. And and in that oval, you see a pattern. It looks something like what used to be on old TVs, that's static. In yeah. fact, 
if you had an old TV and you could tune it, you know, with a rate with an antenna, about 10% of the static that you see is that is that sound that we heard. So you can still see it on a on an old style television. Sure, an analog TV, yeah. Yeah, an analog TV. And so, but what it so it, that's what it looks like. It looks like a static pattern. It's got all kinds of uh, interferences in it. So there's there's a lot of ways that we have to actually kind of massage that data to make it correspond to what we would actually see. So we have to we like because what happens is that sound or that light that we're seeing from the early universe, it gets distorted, it gets refracted from like material that's in the in the Milky Way. It gets it has um, there's you know interstellar gas and dust that interfere with it. So we have to kind of filter all that noise out of the signal. And then what we're left with is this really, it looks almost random that there are these um, splotches of different colors and the car colors correspond to the temperature of the light that we see. So there's, there's slight variations in the temperature of the light that we're seeing. And so what we do is we just color code those temperatures. So the cooler temperatures are, we, blue. are blue. And then it's, it, it's a gradient. So from it goes from blue all the way up to like, I think, red or orange. And so that's what you end up seeing is this pattern of splotchy light that records these slight variations. And those variations turn out to be essential. Like, because, and, and we'll get into this, but in that pattern in those differences is the first opportunity that we can that we've taken a picture of of the potential for relationships to happen and this becomes really important because what it's revealing is something fundamental about how the universe creates it's in those tiny differentials in temperature that creativity happens okay so we have to we have to kind of contextualize this a little bit. What we're looking at is a surface of light that we can't actually see through because the because the Planck satellite is tuned to the microwave light and this energy that we're looking at is microwave, it's opaque. So that's how we can see it. In order to in order to see it, you need to make it opaque. So we can't actually see through it. We can only see it as a wall. Let me see if I can this would be really hard to do, but First of all, let me say this. We're talking about the history of the universe here, right? So this whole episode that we're doing, this first episode, spans from t, t equals zero, the Big Bang, right. to 380,000 years after the Big Bang. So that's that's not a lot. That's that's just a tiny a fraction. Sliver, yeah. Of, of, right. The universe is 13.8 billion years. We're talking about 380,000 years. It's, like, it's just a tiny little slice of time. So <laughs> what we're seeing, though, with this satellite is... Now remember, Big Bang theory. It 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 implies that everything in the universe was once in a singular spot. It was once compressed down. Everything that's in the universe today was once in a singularity. It was one. It was in a single point of space. If that's the case, then it's unimaginably hot and unimaginably dense. Okay, so then after the Big Bang what we see is this inflationary period. So all of the data that we've been able to collect and through modeling and things like that predict that the universe is going to go through this period of rapid inflation. So for some reason that we don't know, and there's this where that mystery shows up is why it's important, but somewhere in, for some reason, this thing suddenly expands massively as it's expanding, it's cooling. So before 380,000 years, the entire universe was what we call a plasma in a plasma state. So it's highly energized, super hot, opaque, bright white light. You can imagine those old um, fluorescent bulbs, those long skinny tubes, sure. and they're white. And if you look at them, it's like they're opaque white. There's like a white gas that's inside there. And then you, if you plug it in, you turn it on, you see that bright white fog inside that tube. If you can imagine being inside there when when it's on, that's what the early universe would look like. You'd just be surrounded by this bright white fog. But if somebody came along and turned off the light all of a sudden, then suddenly that light that you were just in would now be rushing away from you at the center of the universe. That's what the 
picture of the cosmic microwave background radiation is. It's a picture of that wall of light that you were just in receding away from you at the speed of light. Okay. Wow. And in that, in, in that wall, in that surface of light is imprinted whatever quantum fluctuations that there were in the universe in that moment. Okay. So, so this is what we're looking at. We're looking at this wall of light behind which is the big bang. So the big bangs back down there. And then there was all this other stuff that happened in between the big bang and the surface of light. It's 300. It's a 380,000 year period. And somewhere within that 380,000 years, what we know as the fundamental forces of the universe got themselves sorted out. So, you know, the, the big ones are, you know, electromagnetism, strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force, gravity, and that the Yankees suck. So those are the fundamental... Quick post-production edit. I did not pick up on that New York Yankees smackdown that Rich conveniently slid in there uh, during our live interview. Rich happens to be a huge Boston Red Sox fan, so I found that hilarious. Well done, Rich. Well done. Now let's get back to our regularly scheduled program. What we know as the fundamental forces of the universe got themselves sorted out. So, you know, the, the big ones are, you know, electromagnetism, strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force, gravity, and that the Yankees suck. So those are the fundamental forces. And if you take those forces and you take the photons of the early universe and you subject them to those forces, you end up with a universe that is in the making. So, so what I want to do is stop for a second and just think about what that surface is. So it's a, it's a wall of light that records what was going on in the earliest moments of the universe. And it's frozen in time. And I don't mean frozen, but it was cooling. So the, as the universe cools, it gets to a threshold temperature where everything that was going on can now be sort of stuck like a, like a photograph. It's like a, it's like a baby picture taken. Yeah. I love that you, re I've heard you refer to it as that as the universal baby picture. Yeah. It's, that's what it's like. So yeah. if you, if you feel, if you find a picture of yourself as a baby, that's what it really is. It's, it's a photograph frozen in time of what you were like back when you were an infant. That's what the cosmic microwave background radiation is. It's a picture of the early universe. Okay. So all of this is a setup really to understand one very important, I think, fundamental principle that's been overlooked. Remember, what it's a picture of are variations in the temperature of the light. Because of those temperature variations, there's the potential for, the, for there to be a relationship between one point in space and another point. Without that variation in temperature, they would be the same temperature. If they're the same temperature, there's no difference. But because of that difference, now suddenly you have the first opportunity for a relationship, right? Now, okay, let's just hold that for a moment. That, that yeah, because that that to me is is fascinating. That this is where this gets really, really cool of how that relationship affects our relationships thirteen point eight billion years later. So I'll turn it back over to you. But yeah, I had to pause there because this when I started to learn more about this through you, uh, this to me is where it gets fun. Okay, so that that's it. That's the take-home message from this: that those relationships that got were, that were frozen in time in that moment, three hundred eighty thousand years after the Big Bang, have now evolved through thirteen point eight billion years into the relationships that we still inhabit today. Okay, now the rest of this series is going to be an account of how that light evolved into the relationships that we're in today. Okay. So Steve, you and I, we're in a relationship, right? You came to visit me. We're friends. Our relationship is implicit in those primordial cosmic relationships. Our relationships came about through the forces that started back in the, in that cosmic microwave background. So not only is that a picture of the universe, it's a baby picture of, of, of our relationship. It's in there somehow the relationships that we inhabit today. And, and, and the rest of this series is going to explain how that happened. Okay. But here's, here's, that's, that's a huge take home message. 
And the other take-home message and is that is, is the relationships themselves. Okay, so I'm trained as an ecologist. That's my, my background. My, the science that I was trained in was ecology. Ecology is the study of relationships. It's usually the study of relationships between organisms and the environment. But those same ecological dynamics that I was taught as an ecologist, it turns out apply to the relationships that are in the cosmic microwave background radiation. There are dynamics, ecological dynamics that are universal to, to all phenomena in the universe. What I'm saying is that we live in an ecological cosmos, that, that, that the cosmic microwave background radiation is a snapshot of the primordial ecology of light. But to look at the screen right now is a snapshot of those same relationships today. Do you see what I mean? Like this, and there's another idea that I need to introduce right now, which is Please. continuity. What the whole story implies is that those relationships evolved into our relationships. That implies that there is a continuity to reality. It's called ontological continuity, that there is a there's a through line. There is a thread of relationship that threads all the way back to the Big Bang and to here, today, now. That is ontological continuity. So this, these are sort of the fundamental ideas that are going to be important for the chirotic moment that I mentioned earlier. Like, remember, we, we started this conversation talking about how we're living in a time of deep chaos and change and um, disruption. The point is the reason that we're living, that we've created this, this, this chaos is because we've lost touch with the continuity of the cosmos, the continuity that connects us to the cosmos. When you feel disconnected from the world, from the cosmos, you feel alienated, you feel separate, you feel like you, you don't necessarily belong. That's what this story that we're going to tell does is it it reconnects us to the cosmos in a really palpable and scientifically valid way. It shows how, in fact, everything really is connected. Does that make sense? And and, and what Absolutely. comes what comes along with that understanding is a new way of being in that cosmos, a new way of relating to that cosmos, a new way of being an organism in that ecosystem. So my argument here or my proposal with this this idea of Oika is that it feels right to be in right relationship with the world. And this story that science has revealed, purely by accident, you know, scientists don't go out to prove this. It's just that they observe the world and they, they, you know, they document as best they can what they see. But we're in a position now that we can we can piece this what they've seen, we can piece all the separate knowledge that science has been able to generate, we piece it together into this grand continuum, suddenly we're home. We can we can feel back at home. And and the idea here is that potentially that will assuage or ameliorate some of the things that we do because we don't feel at home. Sure. The way because when you don't feel at home, you you want to you want to recreate that home in a more palpable way. And one of the ways that we do that is we try to fill that hole with stuff, with material, with power, with wealth, with whatever. I'm not saying that those aren't good things or that they're worthy of striving for. I'm just saying that because of this background sense of alienation that that I think we collectively feel, that's what's ha helped us to create the the unsustainable conditions that we're in. And so by by knowing this story, this scientific story, we can help to heal that 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 injury that that comes from feeling alienated. Okay. So I, I don't want to get too philosophical about it, but again, this is this is this is how the science of the mi cosmic microwave background radiation can actually help us today. You know, it, it can help us. It can help us Relate. Yeah. Throughout, uh, you know, my entire life and for hundreds, if not thousands of years, there's been the expression, you know, to be one with nature. 
So intuitively, we know we can feel that. Mm. You know, we know how we feel after we've swam in the ocean, after we spent a few hours out in the forest, after we've walked barefoot, um, you know, in the grass. And but what I love about this is this is science kind of explaining why that is and making nice. sense of it all. And and I love what you've you've said, uh, quote, everything that is traces its existence back to that primordial pattern on the surface of last scattering. So this is what light can do given 13.8 billion years of, like you said, relationships. So how do we use this knowledge? And, and we haven't gone deep on it yet, but we will in future episodes. But, but, but just to pause here for a second, how do we kind of use this knowledge of ecological intelligence to create a more beautiful future and create a more beautiful present? Well, <clears throat> first of all, what I call ecological intelligence is a form of intelligence that isn't just within us. Like I think that there is implicitly, first, I guess we have to first back up a little bit and talk about intelligence. When we think about intelligence, we think about it being in us, like intelligent people who do intelligent things or they know a lot. Sure. That is a kind of intelligence. Um, the question is, where does it come from, you know, and how does it get into us? And is it only in us or is there an intelligence in the universe? Well, if you look at the way that the universe has evolved, it's hard not to see that there is an intelligence to it, that it, that the cosmic microwave background radiation is actually revealing that there's a deeper intelligence at play. I'm not assigning it to any you know, being or entity, but that there is a intelligence. You might as well call it the cosmic microwave background intelligence, you know? And so, and it organizes. And what's going to become apparent as we work through these episodes is that that microwave background radiation evolved into. So so if, if, if you could just get outside of the microwave cosmic background radiation and look at it, and watch it for long enough, what you would see is that the first stars tend to form, the first stars in the universe tend to come into existence in the blue areas, the areas of low energy, because stuff can come together, it's quieter and calmer, and gravity can pull matter together, and then that matter becomes the first stars, right? So the point there is that the first starry night that ever anyone could have ever seen is is it corresponds to the pattern of the cosmic microwave background radiation stars as we'll find out go through a life cycle you know they're born they live out their lives and eventually they they die one way or another they either fizzle out or they go supernova so there's what happens though because of that life cycle of stars new stars are born later on so the the, the starry night has not always looked like it looks right now Right? It's it's evolved over time. Stars have come into existence and then gone out of existence. And then new generation and generation after generation. So the starry night that we see tonight traces its lineage back to those the first starry night. Well, and the first starry night goes back to the cosmic microwave background radiation. And the cosmic microwave background radiation goes all the way back to the quantum fluctuations in the Big Bang. That's that continuity, continuity that I was telling you about. So I guess what your question was, is how does that impact the lives we lead today. Well, the lives we lead today are also part of that continuing evolution, right? Because planetary systems like our solar system are also coming into existence and going out of existence around other stars. Is this answering your question? I don't, it might not be actually. What was your yeah, question? Again? No, just, just in our, in our daily lives. I mean, you, you, you talk about, for example, that the, essentially the differences in the heat and so forth has really created kind of what you call the ecology of, of light and, and what led to all of our existence and our relationships today. So I guess, I guess kind of my question is how can we use that gotcha. awareness? Right. Okay. This is why I was getting back to intelligence because if we think about that intelligence being out there, that's kind of coordinating and, and creating, you can either be in right relationship with that 
intelligence or wrong relationship. Okay. I'm not making a judgment as to what is right and what is wrong, but I know what the two feel like. I know what right relationship feels like because it, because it participates in the creativity. And I know what wrong relationship feels like because it doesn't. So there's a, there's a way to discern a right relationship and a wrong relationship. Okay. If we're going to continue in the story, if humanity is going to continue to participate and prosper from that creative story, it makes sense that we would do it in alignment with that creativity. That's what I call right relation. Okay. This is how it, this is how it shows up in our daily lives. When we act, we can feel the difference. We can feel the difference between what it means to participate in the creativity of the universe and what it means not to. This is not a naive thing I'm saying. I'm not saying that the universe only creates. Of course, it destroys too. You know, there's, there's, there's destruction as part of that creativity. Obviously, we can see it in supernovas. We can see it in asteroid impacts. We can see it in species extinctions. The point is that there's a way to be in right relationship and feel it or wrong relationship and feel it. I believe we're starting to feel what it feels like to be in wrong relationship with that creativity. And so this is how knowing this story and seeing how the cosmic microwave background radiation is part of the creative process. It invites us to consider what being in a, in more alignment in better right relationship as opposed to wrong. Does that, does that make sense? And again, I'm not, I'm not asserting what those things are. The universe is nature will tell us what's right and wrong. And I think, I think nature is trying to tell us what's right and wrong right now. And it's up. And so that's why this proposal is to really listen deeply to nature. Throughout this conversation, Rich, you've used the word story multiple times and you teach and talk about the difference between story and narrative. So narrative and storytelling. Can you share a little bit about your thoughts on that, the difference between those and why it's so important that we understand that Mm. and also the power of narrative awareness and narrative disruption? Sure, I can. I've thrown a lot at you. No, but I I think it relates to what we were just talking about too. Exactly. Of course it does, how could it not? How could it not relate to it? So the idea here is that um, story, we'll start simple, that story is something that's told like Goldilocks, the story of Goldilocks and the three bears. That's a story. It's, 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 it's kind of produced. It's um, and it's communicated and we find pleasure in following the story. It's kind of like entertainment. That's a story, storytelling. Narrative is the functional part of story. Narrative is a, is a structural thing. It's why story works. And so one of the ways to think about narrative is that it is a, a sequence of causal events. One thing causes another, which causes another, which causes another. So it's a chronological unfolding of events that one can follow. That's what a plot is. Okay. So it turns out that um, human beings have become incredibly powerful narrative creatures. In fact, narrative is how we make sense of the world. So as we go through our lives, things happen and we start to notice the patterns of causation. We start to notice that causal sequence happening. And the more we know, the more effective we can be in the world. So it it has a, creates a positive feedback when, so if you, if you start to think narratively, if you structure your thinking narratively, it pays off. It, it makes the world easier to navigate. It, it, it creates a kind of meaning structure that works and that other human beings can also kind of align with. And so we get into these narrative alignments, you know, ac- across all different scales of the way we organize ourselves, whether it's the, you know, the narrative of the United States, you know, where are this rugged individualism, frontier mentality, innovation. These are the narratives of what it means to be American. Mm-hmm. And so narrative structure and narrative thinking has become almost inescapable in the way that we make sense of the world. I'm going to make the argument later on where that comes from. Like how did human beings acquire the capacity to do narrative? And it it turns out it was the earth itself that taught us 
how to do narrative. So it's a kind of gift of the earth. But but my point with narrative awareness and disruption, which are these kind of key concepts in Oika, are the first is narrative awareness to simply know how powerful narratives are, how dependent we are on them, how just how well they work in helping us make sense of the world. That's narrative awareness. Once you are aware of narratives, you're suddenly empowered to decide what narratives are in your best interests and and are not. You know, like it's a kind of um, it's a kind of it's kind of an emancipation from narrative. So instead of being fed narratives by others that are pre-designed and and you know pre-packaged for you to just consume you can actually start to create your own narratives. You can, once you're aware of narrative and how it works, you can start to have fun disrupting your own narratives. This is important because the story that we're going to tell about science and how it unfolds over time, it asks us to disrupt narratives that we hold, perhaps in an unquestioned way, about how the world works and what is our what is our role, what is our where do we fit these are all narratives that are up for debate right now like the 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 latest science is actually suggesting that there are other narratives about how interconnected we are um that we have that we have not been telling um that we've not been using to make meaning of the world so that's what's that's 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 how story and narrative work in this process yeah, I love the metaphor that I've heard you talk about, um, about, you know, narrative. You talk about it as being like a conductor on a, you know, train tracks, you know, that that it's a pre-planned, like you just mentioned a, a moment ago, kind of path narrative that's been that's been set up that that, you know, already, you know, for you that you can, you know, choose. But but as you have more weight on that train and you're going down a hill and you're gaining more speed, that really kind of you know, is, is, is kind of an ego thing, isn't it? Yeah. Well, ego is like the momentum of the train. It's, it's what carries the train. Now at that point, you should be asking yourself, what are these tracks that we're on? You know, exactly. And, and how are they designed and are we going to be able to make this turn or are we going too fast? And this is what narrative disruption, this is what narrative disruption allows you to do. It's like, well, wait a minute. Why are we on these tracks? Why are we on these narrative tracks? And can, is there a better way that we can, is there a different story that we can be telling ourselves that's not so <laughs> out of control? That's awesome. For our listeners, if you'd like to learn more or do a deeper dive on everything that Rich and I have been talking about, you can go to, in fact, you just mentioned a few moments ago, I believe for the first time on this conversation, we've talked about Oika a lot um, on your previous appearances, but we haven't during this this series. So, so briefly, Rich, can you tell our listeners a little bit about what Oika is? And it's oika.com, your website. But can you shed a little light on that for our sure. listeners that maybe haven't heard you on the show before? Sure. As I mentioned, I'm trained as an ecologist. Well, the eco in ecology comes from the Greek word oikos. Uh, so that's kind of where the word oika comes from i kind of half invented it um it turns out also that that same eco of ecology is the eco of economy uh and so there is this idea that we can recouple uh ecology to economy so um but anyway that's down, that's that's for future episodes but the idea here is that um oika is the word that i invented to to acknowledge the intelligence of nature. So Oika really refers to the intelligence of nature, like the intelligence that's in the cosmic microwave background radiation. But here's the other interesting part about it. It turns out that humans can feel that. Humans can feel that intelligence and we can actually express it. We can actually align with it. That's the idea of Oika is that it's the intelligence of nature that can be felt and expressed through humans because it's already in us. And the rest of this story that we're going to tell over these episodes is is how that that ecological intelligence that oika got into us how we have in some ways relinquished it and how we might get it back and what i love about the story is it just keeps getting better and better can't wait all right rich for for our listeners who may want to do a deeper dive on this uh where can they go and what can they do well 
it's one thing to watch a video, which we encourage you to do. It's another thing to like listen to you and me talk, converse, but it's a whole nother ball game to be a part of a community that's having conversations about these things. And so this is one of the parts of Oika that, you know, we can make available to people who want to do that, who want to dive deeper into these ideas and these subjects, but do it as part of a, as part of a community. So we meet, you know, we have, I have a couple of different courses that I offer. One's called Oika for Earthlings. That's for anybody who just wants to get to know these concepts and, and, and develop a deeper relationship with nature. And then we have another one, which is Oika for artists and culture, cultural creatives, because I'm not sure if I communicated this earlier, a big part of Oika is to create that culture, create a culture that's more aligned with nature, and then to, you know, to manifest all these benefits that I was talking about. And so for people who want to potentially pursue this in more of a, you know, a professional way or a leadership way, we have this Oika for um, artists and cultural creatives course um, that I teach with some of the artists that I've been working with. And once again, that can be found at Oika, O-I-K-A dot com. Rich, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much. I can't wait for part two next week. We will see you then. Awesome. Thanks, Steve. Come join us next week when we move into the Celestia era. We pick it up where we left off around 400,000 years after the Big Bang and go all the way up to about 4.6 billion years ago. Rich and I will continue to follow ecological intelligence along the path of ontological continuity, but now across celestial scales. We'll chat about what spiraling galaxies have to do with our modern day lives. Rich explains to us how material byproducts of stellar metabolism are the elements that our world is made up of, including us. The gold in our banks, the iron in our blood, the calcium in our bones, the oxygen in our lungs, and even the myths of our ancestors are the gifts of celestial ecology. We'll even cover a fascinating mathematical game of life. You won't want to miss this episode. We'll see you next week. Special thanks to our producer, Noah Existe, and editor, Joe Tempogo. Our music was written and performed by Algian Importante. Thank you so much for listening. If this podcast brightened your day in any way, please share it with a friend who you think it might resonate with. Subscribe and leave us a rating and review as that is the single best way to help the show and get the word out to more good humans. For behind the scenes info, please visit our website at betterplaceproject.org where you can even click on the microphone in the lower right hand corner and leave us a message or just stop by to say hi. And you can follow us on Instagram at betterplaceproject and you'll find me at Instagram at Steve Norris Official. Look for small ways to be kind this week, and that will help make the world a better place. Make the world.